This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Whitney Mortimer. Whitney is the CMO and a partner at IDEO, a global design company that creates positive impact through design. Previously, she served as the Senior Vice President of Marketing and New Business Development at Supercuts. Prior to Supercuts, she held various positions in brand management and strategy with ENJ Gallo Winery, Frito-Lay, and American Express International Bank. On this episode, Whitney talks about design thinking and how it can transform your marketing, the power of constraints, and how to measure and manage creativity. Whitney is an incredible leader and marketer, and this is an episode that is absolutely packed with great insights, especially for anyone who wants to be an innovative marketing leader. As usual, here are some of our top takeaways from this episode. But I I do think what's really important is to be deeply connected to the conversation being held at the Whatever level of the company, often it's been the highest level of the company, not always, wherever that conversation about where you want to go and what you want to be, where your aspirations are being born. And I have to listen in on that conversation really closely and frequently in order to do what I think is important for a marketer to do, which is constantly be adapting the story and the positioning, if you will, to what people want and need. People, leaders in particular, are very afraid of what it means to step into a digital future, an automated future, a machine-driven future, where the fear is you'll lose me or us, that we'll lose our humanity, that the machines, not just that they'll take over and, you know, serve us our dog for dinner or something like that, ridiculous, but but more specifically that, that we'll all become robots, which is kind of how I feel some days when I'm using Slack or email. It's like I'm just a robot triaging, you know, this flow that's coming at me as opposed to a creative person who's m- making meaningful connections that allow me to unlock my creative capacity. It's your job as a leader to stay inspired and to share that inspiration with others. And it knocked me over. It felt really generous and it gave all of us a lot of permission to stay well with regard to, or to, to take care of ourselves with regard to how we feed ourselves. And I had never heard anything like that in any other organization I'd worked for before, but I practice it all the time. And I notice that when I'm losing hope or energy, uh, of course I can see that in everyone around me, not just because I'm projecting and not that everybody's dependent on me, but we always say, you know, bring your whole self to work in every organization should say that. But the way I bring my whole self to work is I bring what I'm fired up about. And sometimes it's about work. (laughs) Sometimes it's about other things. Thanks again to Whitney for sitting down with us. So without further ado, here is our interview with Whitney Mortimer, partner and CMO at IDEO. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have at IDEO. Whitney, how's it going? <laughs> really good. It's, uh, it's going to be a fun episode. I think... The world knows about IDEO, but we haven't had you on the show yet to share what marketing looks like. You've had an amazing career. But first, before we get into all that, how did you get into marketing? How did I get into marketing? Oh, my goodness. Um, You know, I don't think I had that many paths in front of me as a young person. I wish I'd had more, not that I mind being in on the path of marketing, but um, it, marketing was something that was in my family. My grandfather was involved with a very well-known organization that uh, made the world safe for things like Miracle Whip and Cool Whip oh, yeah. and uh, Minute Rice and a whole bunch of other things. And so I grew up with um, the test kitchens of General Foods, you know, being 
around, and I tried a whole lot of really weird food like Jello One Two Three. No kidding. Yeah, that's a really weird food. I don't know if you know what that does, but basically, no. you stir it all together like Jello, and it separates automatically into three la- layers: a Jello layer, a mousse layer, and a whipped topping layer. What? Franken food, total Franken food. But you know, we were there kicking the tires on that, and Tang, and Moon Foods, and things like that. And I think that uh, marketing got into my blood really early on as a result of being close to my grandfather and his experience as a marketer. Yeah. So what, what was his role? He was CEO and he was chairman of the board for a very long time. He was also involved with a lot of other boards. But I think, you know, he started out in marketing and sales, but he was really an innovator and was doing really interesting things. For example, gets a lot of credit for having been one of the people who opened the markets in the U.S. and then the world to frozen foods. They yeah. acquired bird's eye at some point in there. And if you want to distribute frozen foods, and you can even understand what the technology of freezing food is yeah. about, and it's at that time it was said to have a better nutritional value and it was aesthetically more pleasing in terms of color and taste and things like that. But you've got to get the infrastructure into stores and you've got to get trucks and you've got to get the infrastructure into people's homes. So he worked every part of that equation to make that – uh, the conditions for that to be a thing possible. Um, of course, I didn't realize this till much later in my life. But when I'm looking back, I'm like, there it is. There were the roots of uh, my curiosity, I think, about how things happen and about innovation in general. Well, you talk about some of the most iconic brands that people still talk about, right? like all of those. <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah, no. <laughs> but but I think that, that all, all of those kind of had their own unique story. I Speaking of stories, so I, and you might not be able to to uh, corroborate this, but there was – I've heard this story that this is a marketing story that back in the day that salmon was like not a traditionally like consumed food and huh. that basically there was this huge like salmon, you know, like boom and then they kind of needed to figure out a way to make – that get rid of all this salmon. So they so they basically gave it to a bunch of sushi chefs. We're like, we'll give you this at cost, but you have to call it like sushi grade salmon. Uh, uh, are you trying like to this. scare me? I mean, that that is a little bit terrifying, which is where are we going to dump this salmon raw? <laughs> no, no, I, I'm telling you. I, this is like, this is, I mean, I, we'll have to like Snopes this story afterwards, but we talked about this on an early episode of Marketing Trends. But yeah. That, That's the, fascinating. Yeah. I love that stuff. You know, I, I have a similar story to that, which is, you know, I did work for Gallo Winery way, yeah. way, way, way back when. And uh, one of the things that we were working on at that time, this is like in the 80s, you know, when dinosaurs were roaming the earth, there was a big boom going on in Zinfandel, excuse me, white Zinfandel, you know, Mm -hmm. that pink kind of sweet product. And um, Gallo, who when they go into anything has to go in, you know, at scale, they can't Mm -hmm. just sort of, you know, toe dip into that. They didn't have enough Zinfandel available to go into the white Zinfandel business. So what they did have was a lot of Grenache lying around. And Grenache is a typical grape that's blended into some wines that lots of people love very, very much. But they invented white Grenache as an alternative to white Zinfandel uh, in order to be in that market sooner and faster with something that they could build their own brand and reputation around, which, of course, puts other brands back on their heel to try to figure out, well, how are we going to get into this white Grenache business now? And what's interesting about that story, I think, also is that, you know, when Gallo gets into a market like that, and I think it's still true today, I haven't been in touch with them for many years, you know, when we saw that when when they advertised white Grenache, sales of blush wine for everybody went up. Yep. And so they made markets. And that was, I think, really one of the things that I learned very early in my career from Gallo was build the pie, not the slice, as we say around here at IDEO. Um, but that sunk in really early. And when I came over to IDEO, getting ahead of myself here, I was really focused on pie building, not mm-hmm. slice not slice building, although a bigger slice is always nice. But really, that's what I'm interested in is how do you kind of create new offers and opportunities um, that make growth for everybody? Yeah, I mean, we we've talked in a bunch of episodes about this idea of category creation. Mm-hmm. I think you know, look at the food industry is the prime example of this. Yeah. We just had an awesome uh, episode, which I don't know if it's heard yet, with um, Francesco, who who used to be uh, in the cheese industry, specialty cheeses, and we we he told this brilliant story about how you know in the cheese market, 
you have all this milk, right? You have to do something with it. Like you're paying them yeah. to create it. It's yeah. like, it has I'm, to go yeah. somewhere. Right? Surplus cheese. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, well, cheese is great because specialty cheeses take time and there's all sorts of different things, right? But he told this story about how, you know, putting blue cheese on burgers ended up becoming oh. uh, really popular. And so one of the things that they did, he did as a marketer was take the blue cheese and instead of putting it in the supermarket where all the rest of the cheese is, putting it in the meat aisle. Oh, wow. Um, because, and then they read, they called it burger blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it flew off the shelves, right? But I think that those, like, those type of marketing lessons are things that, you had to be so creative mm-hmm. to because you had constraints. Like you had a lot of these things. Did you find early in your career that, you know, when you were, you know, working at whether it's, you know, Gallo or mm-hmm. Supercuts or just early mm-hmm. days at IDEO that there were constraints around you that you had to figure out a way to, you know, build the whole pie like you're saying? Well, nothing but constraints. But um, I don't think constraints are a bad thing. In fact, I think in creative literature will tell you that constraints are absolutely necessary. Otherwise, you just kind of like fly off the planet with boundless opportunities. So introducing constraints is part of the creative process. I think, though, that maybe there's a distinction to be made between creative constraints, which help you be more generative or creative, and barriers. I have a friend, Teresa Amabile, who wrote a really important book called – she's a professor at Harvard Business School, and she's an organizational behaviorist. And she wrote a really important and interesting book called The Progress Principle, which kind of broke open this idea that to make progress in meaningful work – of course, the work needs to be meaningful – but maybe don't overdraw what meaning is to you versus me. I mean, we find – I found a lot of meaning in my work at Supercuts, for example. Mm -hmm. But what's really important and the thing she put her finger on is you need to be able to feel like you can move forward in whatever it is that you feel is worth your time. Absolutely. And organizations, and there's some legendary ones that were set up, you know, to to do really interesting, meaningful work, and yet they lose employees or they lose engagement from people because people don't feel that they can move forward, that things aren't happening. Uh, And so her book is really about sort of designing all the ways that people do feel like they're making forward progress so they don't get to that kind of blockage. And, of course, the ratio of, you know, the more meaning or the more significance in your work, the more significant those blockages feel when you're trying to save the world, for example. Uh, So coming back to, you know, to IDEO and my, you know, 22 years here. I think, you know, we've really been a project-based economy uh, or ecology, I guess, here. And I think part of that is how we get stuff done, but it's also how we make meaning around that feeling of moving forward against increasingly sticky challenges. Like how do you have sort of a a beginning and middle and end to each little cycle Mm -hmm. when you're getting into deeper and deeper, more systemic kind of challenges? Yeah, kind of share for our listeners, like, what does marketing look like at, mm. at IDEO? I'm, you know, I'm sure it's it's changed uh, over the years, but what's, like, the size of the org? How do you view this? Do you work mostly internal, mostly external? What's, what's the kind of uh, org look like? Well, the the I can answer that question based on now, but it's not necessarily a picture of what it's been like you know, <laughs> before now because we're in a we're in our own transition. I mean, we we when I joined the company, half of its lifetime ago. In other words, the company's forty years old. I've been here about twenty two years. I was a client for three years before that. And at the point where I stepped into it, it was a fairly traditional, relatively small B two B organization that had a strong business development orientation. So you know, a lot of marketing was focused on writing proposals and building assets with which you write and shape proposals. And to a certain <laughs> degree, there was a um, there was a media capability, not a very big one. And what shifted, I think, over the last twenty years, and I think there's probably three or four chapters to this, but the major shift was IDEO itself diversified dramatically beyond product development and moved into many more spaces. We diversified in terms of the industries we were working in, the nature of the problems we were touching, the nature of the solutions that we offered. So uh, from being a pretty classic product development firm to uh, an organization that had a an approach or a methodology that was broadly applicable to things that surprised even us. So we were taking some of the things that were working from us, from the toolkit of designers. Today, we shorthand that to design thinking. But we Mm -hmm. were taking the sort of mindset and activities of designers and starting to apply those to new kinds of challenges like education. Can you stand up a new school system in different ways 
based on new challenges or um, barriers to success in different parts of the world. Or government, you know, can you think about government agencies as being uh, being more human centered mm-hmm. uh, rather than policy centered? What would that look like? Or social innovation. Out of that came IDEO.org. Mm-hmm. So IDEO is is great at constantly reinventing itself. Great at exploring the edges of what is possible and eternally committed to helping design evolve to meet new kinds of challenges. And this is especially relevant in this moment where the, the, the challenges that are facing business and society are inherently human in nature. They are at scale and they are inherently systemic in their nature. They have to bring more people along, not just stakeholders and consumers and users and things like that, but um, sources of funding. Different kinds of organizations have to learn how to bring their organizational antibodies down to make coalitions that can make important things happen in response to really worthy challenges. So design has is very adaptive, and IDEO has had really to be you know, sort of at the edges of pushing the practice of design in order to wrap itself around these new kinds of challenges that we're facing. I want to talk a little bit about design thinking because IDEO has been at the forefront of this. And it's something that feels like in recent years has started to really pick up in terms of like broader acknowledgement that this is like critical to like our future, mm-hmm. to rethink problems, to think different about things. Where do you think it's at in its trajectory? And we can talk about marketing after this, but just first like the trajectory for just regular people, like regular people, non-marketers using this as something that can shape their orgs. Right. Well, um, that's a great question. And it's a bit, there's many layers and ways into that question. But I'll start by saying it's not not been around that long. So, you know, we ourselves at IDEO started using it constantly and all the time as of around 2004. Now, we didn't invent the term. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of work that's been done to sort of say, where did this term come mm-hmm. from? It probably goes back to the early 90s and some academic work that was exploring, quote, wicked problems in design thinking. Um, (laughs) So it's been around for a while. But, you know, like all good ideas, it has its moment. And it took off partly because we got very interested in it, I think. But realistically, you know, good movements need good partners. And there were a lot of partners in that movement. Stanford was one of them, surely, and many others. But point is, is that in in the early 2000s, coming out of that, the dot-com collapse, the first one, mm-hmm. <laughs> there were a lot of organizations looking around. Uh, they didn't really have a lexicon or a language for this, but mm-hmm. they were looking around for responses to how to build growth, top-line organic growth. And there were a lot of killer apps out there about how to take cost out or how to do M&A or how to do a lot of things that create business value. But there really wasn't a kind of killer app for how to build organic growth, invent new things, new offers for new customers, new offers for existing customers. I came from a world of, you know, packaged goods and brand management where we got really good at line extensions and sort of making more out of the same thing. Adding SKUs. Absolutely. Uh, like like yeah. figuring out line, different I mean, combinations of yeah. SKUs. You know, it's funny. I mean, all the all the case studies that I remember reading when I was in school were all about like and I love Jim Collins. I love Good to mm-hmm. Great, but it was all that type of stuff, right? Totally. It's like massive organization. How do we cut this thing or change this thing or do this, but not like expanding new horizons? Right, and I, it's not a surprise. Massive organizations like the one my grandfather founded were <laughs> set up to optimize and exploit rather than explore and be generative. And so what you found was that there was a set of tools that we and others were messing around with and getting better and better at to generate new-to-the-world things in spaces, you know, the stories are legendary, you know, the first mouse for Apple and the first laptops and first smart early smartphones and, you know, really significant breakthroughs in devices uh, in the health space, for example, like the automatic portable defibrillator mm-hmm. or dial-a-dose insulin pens. You know, mm-hmm. those things were giant leaps that created new markets partly because they were consu- making usable technology that previously had been used in, uh, left in the domain of specialists. So those are things that basically now you can take a huge crash cart to revive somebody who's having a heart attack and move that into a public space where young people and non-specialists can actually use it. That's amazing. But that approach that we were using and so many others were using at the time became the backbone of how to grow 
how to work differently in order to make something happen uh, with regard to the organic growth of organizations. And what we found at IDEO was that when people were coming in and saying, design me one of these, but let me be really close to you so we can have some of that, you know, know-how rub off. That had been happening for a while, probably since the late 80s, at least. And yet I think it became kind of a conscious competence uh, during the 2000s. And we needed to find a name for it. And uh, we were talking to David Kelly, who said, you know, over at the D-School, actually, it wasn't the D-School yet. It was over at Stanford. <laughs> we are calling it design thinking. And um, so it was kind of born, you know, in that moment as a lot of ideas, you know, they pop up all over the place because they're in the kind of zeitgeist <laughs> of, of the minds of many people trying to work on one shared problem. And that was our challenge, which is, what are we going to call this? Uh, we'd been referring to human-centered design for a long time up to that point, and they're not exactly identical, human-centered design and design thinking, but they have many of the same qualities and activities in them. What do you think are the conditions for good marketing? I have a strong point of view about that. <laughs> come to the right person. Um, let me just say, people often say, oh, you're a marketing specialist. What do you got to say? I don't actually think of myself as first, a marketing specialist. Yeah, I, I work in marketing and I have for my entire life. But to be a good marketer, I have to be pretty deep in, in strategy. And in fact, the way I describe my role often at IDEO is I think of myself more as a sense maker in chief, mm -hmm. which is I have to make sense of all this stuff coming from inside the organization and outside the organization and decide from a communication point of view what to do about that. So to answer your question, what I think is important is you have to be darn good at making patterns. You have to be articulate, obviously. You have to have craft with regard to how you use words and images and tell stories uh, and make meaning and all those things that, you know, we know all about. But I, I do think what's really important is to be deeply connected to the conversation being held at the... Whatever level of the company, often it's been the highest level of the company, not always, wherever that conversation about where you want to go and what you want to be, what your, where your aspirations are being born. And I have to listen in on that conversation really closely and frequently in order to do what I think is important for a marketer to do, which is constantly be adapting the story and the positioning, if you will, to what people want and need in that particular moment, which is always changing, of course, based on dynamics. And there's, you know, sort of in the moment things like what's happening over there on social media, but there's also bigger arcs, what's happening in the economy, where is the anxiety of leaders, leaders today around what they need to learn how to do or what they don't know how to do yet? Um, what are their challenges? So it's a kind of a sense making exercise that requires being close to those strategic conversations where your aspirations are being born and discussed. And then you've got to have, of course, the skills of knowing how to operationalize that. How do you think that those things play out at a company like IDEO where so much of what you work on is, you know, kind of in the cutting edge, in the in the stuff that are new ideas, are new things being brought to the table. Right. Well, I think, you know, that was originally the challenge that I had to learn about very quickly when I first joined the company. It's, it was an upside-down company uh, in, in relative to everything I'd ever experienced where, you know, in everywhere I'd ever worked, there was this kind of cascading set of intentions that came down through plans. Yeah. And it was very planning-focused. That was not just emblematic of the kinds of companies I was working for. It was the era. That was the era that we were in with regard to marketing. And you made a plan with a lot of iteration and you know, feedback and detail, and then you acted on that plan. And there the was- The business plan. The business plan it's, or the marketing plan. It was called the plan. business plan. Oh my God. And I, I don't know, I just like between us chickens and everybody listening today, I mean, that was deadly for me. It was absolutely deadly because it left no space for intuition, being opportunistic yep. and being super responsive to what was coming at you. Now, in many cases, you're moving a giant machine. Uh, so it, it's- it's really disruptive to be like, you know, let's not go over there. Let's go over there. However, having said that, when I came to IDEO, I let go of a lot of the things that I, I felt everybody does these things. They all have clipbooks. You know, they all do these cascading plans. They all have, you know, drawer copy. They all have these things. We let go of those things 
partly because I don't like it, <laughs> and partly because we felt that it was better to have a very rich conversation, almost a shared mind or a shared intention, and say, yes, we intend in the coming year or the coming couple of months or whatever to go in that direction. And then we're in a constant conversation about whether that's still right and whether we should be pivoting to something else. And that was really inspiring. IDEO was very supportive of that and comfortable with that. And I came to realize that wasn't just about IDEO. That was the era uh, that was inherently more entrepreneurial, inherently more nimble, more agile, more responsive, faster. It was born out of a startup kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. And it was incredibly refreshing for people like me who were kind of um, passing <laughs> as you know deeply analytical when in fact I was highly intuitive as well. And I finally got to sort of blend those things. In fact, I had to, when I came to IDEO, I kind of suppressed that kind of analytical side. But there is a part of me who loves to get really lost in a spreadsheet. I too like to get lost in a spreadsheet <laughs> from time to time. Um, Don't we? You know, I, I mean, I think, but I think that there's a lot of that that comes from, you know, Wall Street and quarterly and, you know, this is oh, the year, absolutely. this is the quarter, you bet. this is where you need to fit into you this. You bet, absolutely. Um, and especially back, you know, if you take the people who, took all of those things from the 80s into the 90s and the limited amounts of transparency, you know, no social, no, mm -hmm. uh, no internet, like interconnectivity, no immediate feedback. The ability to be nimble wasn't as important. But so now it's like if you're not able to be extremely responsive That's at right. a moment's notice, if you can't, you know, be out in the market, then like constantly, totally. um, it's, it's a different thing. Did you feel like there were some things that you needed to unlearn to be effective? Oh, my – almost everything, I think. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was a, sort of an excruciating and delightful process of unlearning some things. Just because we've been doing it that way for a long time didn't mean I had to continue doing it that way. Can I tell you the story of how I got to IDEO? Because I think that was the first thing I had to unlearn. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it was a moment where um, I had hired – I was at Supercuts and I'd hired IDEO to reinvent haircutting. I mean, mm -hmm. we had a big problem. We had to hire something like 10,000 stylists. We had to have 10,000 stylists a year running a, a large multi-unit operation all over the world. And there was 50% turnover rate. Yeah. And haircuts are hard. It, I think the research showed that it takes 22 or 23 discrete skills to deliver a decent haircut, ranging from eye-hand coordination to uh, fine motor movements to communication skills, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're turning over like crazy. You have quality control problems. You, you have a massive time challenge because every single every haircut is a different amount of time, and yet you need to fit be, people in certain be amounts Be great of time. under pressure. Go. Yeah. Um, with, with a sharp object in your hand. Yeah. There were a lot of complicated things, and that's actually what kept me at that company for so long. I mean, that was a really interesting problem. Here was my moment. My aha moment was um, I'd hired IDEO to reinvent haircutting for many reasons. But one of the reasons was we were looking at a potential risk related to carpal tunnel syndrome, or mm. more specifically static loading, which is making small movements with a pair of scissors over and over again yep. for many hours a day could be really hard on nerves and uh, hands and things like that. So we were looking at uh, just, just start over IDEO, figure it out, and we'll build a new chain concept around it if it makes sense or we'll roll it into the middle of the um, organization that we have. And Jane Fulton Surrey, who is the mother of human factors for IDEO and for so many others beyond IDEO, uh, was the person I was working with. She was I was her client. And she said, can we go watch in the stores? And I said, just read the research. I'll have a dump truck back up to your house on Saturday morning and drop it all off. We've got tons of surveys and focus group analysis and all this kind of stuff. And um, she's like, you know, that's not the kind of research we want to do. We want to really get into the hearts and minds of your customers and of your, of your stylists. So I said, okay, but don't get in the way. You know, brilliant leadership <laughs> there. And um, she came back a couple weeks later with a really lo-fi presentation. We're talking Bristol board and Polaroids. And I thought, oh, come on, IDEO. But in any case, she holds up this one Polaroid, and it's got a picture of a guy. Most of our customers were men. And he's been sprayed because you pay extra for a hair, for have your hair washed. So we've sprayed him down. Oh, I know. Yeah. You, you, I'm, I'm telling your story. Yeah. We've draped him with that cloth. Essentially, we've cut off his arms is what that is. And the lighting is terrible. So he looks ghoulish and the light's coming down from the top. So he's got these long shadows dropping down his, faces, his face. 
And um, got the double chin going. It's awful. They, uh, and and she holds up this Polaroid and she says, "You see this guy? He'd like to come have his haircut every six weeks." That's what we think he should have his haircut, you know, every six weeks. That's good for our business and it's good for him. It's really good for him because he hates it when he walks out of the store and everybody's like, hey, great haircut. You know, women may like that. Some women. Men typically don't like that if they're in the maintenance mode of haircuts. I, you're smiling. I can tell I'm describing you. It's true. <laughs> and, yeah, we get along my hairs yeah. right now. <laughs> anyway, so she says, this guy's coming every nine weeks. And then, of course, that makes it more traumatic because then he walks out and everybody notices the haircut. And she said... We have to find a way not to emasculate your customers. It was like, boom. <laughs> I thought, I've been soaking in this research for how long? I thought there wasn't anything you couldn't tell me about my customers. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have told me that I was emasculating them. And that made all the difference in terms of how we turned toward now. We have to get rid of the water. We have to get rid of the cape. Long story short, we did get to an early stage concept around that. And then the company, for various reasons, decided not to move forward. But because it was threatening, right? It's really disruptive. But that moment was sort of the end of an era for me, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, big research, lots of work being done to understand how many of these things can I sell or who Mm -hmm. wants to buy this thing, but not enough work done focused on the question, what is possible? What could be different? What could be better? Other than the kind of incremental, you know, improvements around the edges. So that was really big. And um, long story short, a couple of years later, I pop up here at IDEO. And that has been, that was a really important moment in terms of setting me off on a different trajectory as a marketer. Well, I think the rise of marketers, we talk on this show about, you know, obviously it's a lot of marketers talking about this, but that there's going to be a lot more uh, marketers, CMOs turned CEOs in the future because creativity and marketing are more important than they ever have been. And you have the past, I think, was a lot of operational-based, you know, CEOs. And to to take the haircutting example, what, you know, places are great at is you have the barbicide is in the right spot yeah. every single yeah. thing. You have each of the things labeled. You have everyone using the same set of tools because right. we can bulk buy them. You have, like, all these things. Everything is right in it, in the right place, you know, in the right time, all of that, which is great for operational efficiency and all of that. But it's like... You know, who asked the person cutting their hair if they care about any of that? <laughs> well, we did. And what we learned was, you know, it's it's a complicated human-centered problem, and it's a system of not only skills but support. So that to me, you know, I didn't even know at that moment of my life that I was stepping into something that had so much more uh, relevance to so many other sectors. It's made all the difference. But I wanted to come back to the uh, what you had suggested about CMOs now poised to become CMOs at a moment when creativity is more valued. Not just creativity in terms of the, you know, the, the creative services side of creativity, but creative thinking yeah. and c- creative capacity, which is really a response to mostly, I think, a post-2008 realization by the leaders of the world that what got you here won't get you there, which yep. is that whole top-down thing is dead, dead, dead in a, in a world where you have to be responsive and agile at every level of the organization. And, you know, a lot of people have looked closely at that question. But again, that was another wave that IDEO was positioned to surf very well because we had been working on the problem of how to push creative leadership down into the organization, not just because it's a good thing to have, but because it was the engine by which organizations become more more generative. They build deeper bonds with their customers. They become better places to work. Mm-hmm. All the reasons. And there are many. Well, I mean, think about how many resumes say they want outside the box thinkers. Ugh. I mean, that's been like the most forever, right? And it's like, okay, well, how do you measure that, right? Right. Like, and that's, what are the skills that bring you to that. That's right. And you asked the question earlier and never got answered, but like, where are we now? You know, in the very beginning, it was, give me a better way to think about this growth thing. Where we are now is, you know, say 15 years in from our own experience of looking really closely at this question is, it's. I say, we've gone past the banner at the back of the cafeteria days. That's the day. It's like, you know, it's the year of creativity or the year <laughs> of design thinking. It's like, okay, now what do we do? We're way past that point. And in fact, IDEO has been investing, and I know many other organizations have been investing pretty heavily in how are we going to measure and manage creativity. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a trap built into that, which is you can measure and manage the creativity right out of creativity. But we strongly believe, uh, and we have a... A, a group called Creative Ideal Creative Difference, which is really looking at this issue and building tools to help with this, 
we strongly believe that there are behaviors that you want to not only teach, but in support and encourage. And if you start to look at not the output of creativity, but start to look at the presence of those behaviors among teams mm-hmm. or throughout the company, you're on the path to all the things that people want from creativity, which is growth, agility, resilience, and all the good things. And hopefully a better place to work. Because fundamentally, I think that's what what is operating at the heart of this whole thing. That's the secret deep down inside, you know, what hasn't been revealed about the power of, of IDEO's brand is people are invested in knowing that there is another way to work that is more human-centered. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this, you know, slideshow, or no, it's not a slideshow, meme or whatever it is all over the past few years that, you know, the biggest hotel c- company in the world doesn't have any hotels, the biggest, you know, car company car mm-hmm. manufacturer in the world or a car company in the world doesn't have any cars like that sort of thing i mean i think that that speaks to this like aha moment that kind of we've all collectively had of like mm-hmm. oh it turns out the people who you know think the most creative can actually win the most in business what do you think is required for marketers today to be effective um well let me describe the way I frame the map of the territory, and then I'll tell you what I think is important in that space. I grew up in brand. Brand has a, you know, certainly back in the packaged goods marketing days, uh, you know, the pre-digital days, brand has a slow, steady, long view about how it creates value. You know, there are 100-year-old brands. There are probably 500-year-old brands. I don't know what they are. But, you know, brands get created over long arc. But we're in a moment right now driven a lot by, you know, digital everything mm-hmm. that's about growth uh, and, and specifically, you know, engagement through digital means that basically is a, a loud, fast mode. Mm-hmm. And that creates an inherent tension between folks who are focused on creating long-term brand value, uh, enduring value, and who are very intentional in terms of how they do that. And folks who are very focused on growth, and they have to sit together, but, you know, growth goes fast and and wants to acquire a lot of eyeballs and go deep. And so we've been exploring not only here at IDEO, but in all of the rooms where I'm, you know, helping with, you know, how we set up marketing to be successful today, we're looking at that tension, which is how do you integrate the you need the intentionality around building great, enduring brands that are valuable to people and to companies and st- stakeholders and all that. And you need to learn how to navigate in a growth-focused world, not least of which is the markets that are, you know, that own our companies, et cetera, that you mentioned before. I would add another tension to describe this territory fully. And I got this from an article I read by um, Antonio Lucio, who's uh, currently, I think, CMO of Facebook. But he was at um, HP and Visa Mm -hmm. and... um, uh, PepsiCo, mm-hmm. who's a client of IDEO, actually, at one point uh, before that. And I read an article by him recently that talked about all of the roles he has to play as CMO. He has to play the role of, of course, marketing, but he has to think a lot about people, of course. And he, he mentioned something really profound, which is I have to also think about alignment. And that, I thought, was really profound. So that's the third side of the triangle for me. Uh, if you've got the tension that naturally exists between building great brands and driving growth, you also have to do that in the context of constantly pushing for organizational alignment. And a lot of organizations can't crisply articulate where they want to go and what they want to be. And so you have to pull that out of the organization, and that's, that can be really hard. It can be hard because it's just, at face, a difficult question. It's difficult to get alignment within the organization. There are various signals coming to the organization from everything from, you know, shareholders to donors in the case of um, startups, Mm -hmm. uh, or excuse me, uh, uh, nonprofits or investors in the case of startups. You know, there's a lot of signals coming at you telling you you what you should be. And you're, as a marketer, sitting in that crucible of holding that question at a time when you're trying to create long-term value around building valuable brands and drive growth aggressively to meet whatever business objectives that you have. Yeah. I mean, I think it's that, do you want to do it right or do you want to do it right now? Right. <laughs> Great point. You know, I mean, and I think a lot of people who look at, you know, we we talk about the example of Bob Ross, who's a freaking marketing genius. And I love Bob Ross. He's one of my heroes. 
but he was so specific about the fact of making his show that it would last forever. Mm. He was like, I want black screen. I want to talk directly to the camera. I want to wear like very neutral clothes. I want this to last for a long time. And he went to a place in Muncie, Indiana, where he had full control of the creative Mm -hmm. because you wanted to create this vessel, uh, this marketing vessel that could, this show that could help millions of people and, you know, over time. And that kind of singular creative focus allowed, you know, one of the most successful shows ever is like syndicated like 80 million households a week. Right? Yeah. So it's like yeah. it, it crushed Game of Thrones every single week. Right. That's saying a lot. But yeah, I tell you, I can completely relate to that because uh, I've said to many of my colleagues here at IDEO when we do, you know, sort of planning sessions or offsites or whatever. My horizon is 50 to 100 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kid you not. I, you know, my goal personally, apart from, you know, IDEO's collective goal is I want IDEO to be relevant in the history books in 50 to 100 years, preferably as a going concern (laughs) with a vibrant and still, you know, resonant brand. But at the very least, I want it to be an idea that has been influential. And I think we we all want that, but I get to focus on that as a branding lead, as a brand lead, as opposed to, you know, driving the business all day long with clients. I mean, that's a real privilege for me, which is I get to get up every day and work on that kind of long now question, uh, which is the one I love the most. I, I want to get into that because that's super fascinating. And I think it's the thing that, especially with, you know, we've seen all this stuff about, you know, CMOs, the shortest in the C-suite and mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I think tech CMOs getting a little better, but get fired in about 20 months, <laughs> uh, something like that. So you, there is this amount of like, I need to perform right now. Otherwise I will not be around, yeah. but also like, I need to plant seeds that, that grow into Redwoods 10 years from now, 20 years from now right. and, and develop a solid foundation. So how do you do that here? And then how do you, when you talk to you know, your clients, what do you, what are those type of things that you talk to, talk about? Uh, well, there's a couple of questions baked in there, but, um, we have products at IDEO. We have, uh, offers that are discreet from the, say, consulting that we have been known for, for the last, you know, four decades or something. And so we're living that life right now, which is that we want to stand these things up quickly and drive them out into the world and get people to start using them. And they have, they not only have different, slightly different identities, they have a, certainly a different promise. They're products, not necessarily sort of the uh, services that are sort of ha- have a pulse in the same way that a consulting offer would. So we're exploring that all the time. But um, it's made us really be more consciously competent, to use that word again, around what we think the essence of IDEO is. And, and we have a lot more conversations now about what's on brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've had to write a lot of that stuff down. We've grown. That's partly made it necessary. So it's not like an oral tradition anymore. We're <laughs> having to sort of get into the you know, the nuts and bolts of brand guides and things like that and having to think about brand hierarchies and all these things. And so to answer your other question, that's what I'm in conversations with other organizations about as they are facing their own growth trajectories and they're starting to go to market in different ways and different forms where not only sub-brands but subcultures are emerging. How do they build the infrastructure to hold those things in a productive orbit. And that's where I think, you know, there are skills and there are resources available that help organizations do that. And there's nothing mysterious about what they are. There's nothing new in the world of, I think, the fact that you need a brand architecture, you need uh, marketing guidelines to help you stay in that orbit, particularly as the organization gets really big and wants to really run fast. Give people guardrails and guidelines to be able to be generative uh, wherever they sit in the organization so they know where they can be inventive and where they have to be more integrated with the goals of the organization. Well, and as, as CMO, being part of a brand that's been around for so long mm. that people, you know, is synonymous with, with design thinking and creativity and all of that, do you, did you feel like there was a point, you know, recently as, you know, rolling out products and refining products and that sort of thing where you had to kind of like re-educate the market on like what we're capable of or or how you can partner with us? Constantly, constantly. But that brings me to, you know, I've been lucky enough to be at IDEO during a long period where we were helping with other allies, strong, you know, strong markets require strong competition, strong allies. We were inventing something inherently new. So to do that, we were really trying to push the edges back to the whole grow the pie, you know, sort of define a space, what is its value and push that out as far as you can push it into new domains, new applications, et cetera, et cetera. We did a good job. That's the good news. The other news is 
We got competition like we never had before. We have to get really clear about our value proposition now in ways that historically we didn't have to because we were defining the new thing in the blue ocean, if you will, Mm -hmm. as opposed to competing in the red ocean where we have to make the case that our solution is better or preferred or different um, in, in, in specific ways. So we're having to, frankly, we're having to go backwards into some of the old repertoires of how to compete through marketing as opposed to the repertoire of my, the first 20 years of my existence, was, which was really like, how do we stand up a brand new thing in the world and help the world understand its value? But to answer your question, how did we do that? You know, in the blue ocean space, we were constantly looking for new applications for design, design thinking. Um, where is it showing up? The man bites dog, I used to describe it. You know, like, don't tell me about the dog biting the man. Tell me about where the man bites the dog. And in here, what we're having to do is understand what is that thing in this red ocean that we're in? What is that thing where we feel that we really have an unfair advantage? It's like where you're going to play and how you're going to win there. Yeah. The old, um, you know, strategy uh, framework. So, so in that particular case, I still come back to this idea that you have to pay attention not only to the rational value prop, if you will. You have to understand the emotional value prop. And in the old days, or it probably still is to a certain degree, people want to work in a different way. They want to work in a way that feels better, that is more positive, that it's more fun, that it gets them that sense of progress we talked about before. And design thinking tapped into that really powerfully. Today, I think what we're going to learn how to tap into more effectively is People, leaders in particular, are very afraid of what it means to step into a digital future, an automated future, a machine-driven future where the fear is you'll lose me or us, that we'll lose our humanity, that the machines – not just that they'll take over and, you know, serve us our dog for dinner or something like that. Ridiculous. But but more specifically that that we'll all become robots, which is kind of how I feel some days when I'm using Slack or email. It's like I'm just a robot triaging, you know, this flow that's coming at me as opposed to a creative person who's making meaningful connections that allow me to unlock my creative capacity. So I think that's something that I don't want to lose sight of, which is there is a strong need to address a fear that people feel in this new world that we're sitting in. And I want to articulate that in a way that, you know, it's valuable to people, both rationally and emotionally. Well, I think people will will absolutely um, respond well to that, you know, if they're if they're not already, because we all kind of know that, right? Like we know that the amount of complexity that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, the number of inputs. I mean, I think we've all seen the graphic of like, you know, you consume more information in one day than someone in like, you know, 1950 consumed an entire year. I mean, or whatever that thing is, 1900. But I think that we all kind of feel that. I mean, and we like the, you know, the future is always uncertain. I think we're always, you know, humans are always going to be nervous about, you know, what's coming. But I think we do see that like exponential technology is changing our lives every single day. Yep. Nobody can imagine, you know, not having this smartphone in your pocket. And that was really, you know, before a decade ago was not really a thing. Totally. It, you know, I was in Cuba a few weeks ago, dropped my phone into the Bay of Pigs. Kid you not. True story. <laughs> I lost it. And I know where it is. It's under like 10 pounds of sand at the edge of the beach. So I, it's not lost, um, but it's not found either. And, and what I, my first thought was, I can't do anything. Yeah. You know, it's not just inconvenient. It extends my capability. The first panic moment I had was I realized I lost my mind and my memories because I use this tool to expand my retention, my capacity to have content in my brain. And it freaked me out that I just lost a week of content that would never come back because it hadn't been backed up. And frankly, um, I I do understand what everybody's saying about, you know, the need to put these devices down. But I also now appreciate how much it extends us. And so I, I think tapping into that is powerful and interesting as a design equation. Like, what can we do to make, to design for the more positive sides of that as opposed to the addictive side of those behaviors. We definitely might need some of your research from the carpal tunnel days uh, <laughs> because uh, my thumb definitely needs it. Um, who inspires you to be creative? I inspire me to be creative. <laughs> I love that. Uh, with all due modesty, I go out in the world just 
hungry, just consuming stuff all the time. And, you know, trashy media and uh, important books, all of, you know, the whole full buffet. So my head is kind of full of, you know, inspiration from a million different sources. One of the things I heard Tim Brown, our CEO for now, he's stepping away in August and we'll have a new CEO as of August, which is really exciting. I heard Tim say in a leadership meeting years ago, I mean, this might have been, you know, 15 years ago, it's your job as a leader to stay inspired and to share that inspiration with others. And it knocked me over. It felt really generous and it gave all of us a lot of permission to stay well with regard to, or to, to take care of ourselves with regard to how we feed ourselves. And I had never heard anything like that in any other organization I'd worked for before, but I practice it all the time. And I notice that when I'm losing hope or energy, uh, of course, I can see that in everyone around me, not just because I'm projecting and not that everybody's dependent on me. But we always say, you know, bring your whole self to work in every organization should say that. But the way I bring my whole self to work is I bring what I'm fired up about. And sometimes it's about work. (laughs) Sometimes it's about other things. Yeah, no, I love that because I think it's one of the things, you know, I personally have gotten a lot of feedback on in my career is just like being like passionate and excited about stuff and people saying like, hey, you know, it seems like you really love, you know, whatever it is. Like I love marketing, you know, it fires me up. And I think that the, the other side of that is just figuring out like what charges your battery in yeah. order to you, for you to share that inspiration. Like for our CEO, Chad, like we got to lock him in a room and let him read because yeah. that's what charges him up. And then he comes in with a million ideas. For me, it's, you know, talking to a bunch of people or whatever it is. And I think that that's something that people, I think a lot of times, like, don't ever get to take a step back and and figure out how they can share that inspiration with more people because yeah. they don't know how to, to to recharge and be able to, you know, tee it up to the team or whatever. We invest a lot here at IDEO at um, having people teach other people. In fact, we position ourselves as not only people who do stuff in the world, like, you know, we design stuff and we make stuff, et cetera, but we teach stuff. We teach, you know, organizations and leaders and teams how to be more innovative, for example, or be more creative. But we teach each other as well. And so it might be, you know, I took my team birding last week. That's birding. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're a bird. You're a an bird, avid bird I'm watcher. I'm an avid bird watcher. And, and uh, uh, we have a bird list on our wall uh, in our team space. But I took everybody birding. We went over to the Golden Gate National Park and mm-hmm. we walked around. And it was really fun. They had a great time. Not just me, but they had a great time. And so that kind of sharing is an act of generosity and an act of connection and it changes the scenery, and I think it's essential to healthy culture. Any Western yellow tanagers out there? Uh, not Western yellow tanagers, but certainly Western tanagers. Oh, my goodness. Gotcha. Gosh, one of my <laughs> favorite right. I'm birds. I'm going to have to take you birding now. <laughs> I, well, I, they're, they have a... Orange head and a yellow body and yeah, black and wings. and They're fun. They're coming through here a in the springtime. A little white. Um. <laughs> You're going to cut that part out, right? No. Of course we're leaving that. We might leave this part too. Um, Western Tanger. Man, I thought I was yellow. Gosh. I just was too excited. Um, Who else inspires you? Who else inspires me? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm full of quotes and quips, but I was thinking recently about something Ginny Rometty said. It was in my notebook, and I stumbled over it the other day. She's the uh, CEO of IBM. And a couple of years ago, I saw her speak, and she, somebody was asking her, how, how has IBM managed to become a 100-year company? This is one of my pet topics. I just love this idea of what endures over an arc of, say, 100 years or longer. And she said, you know, none of, our, none of IBM's competition is still around. None of it. They have transcended every single era and been the only one in the evoked set of that era to emerge in existence, let alone stronger. Uh, And they've reinvented themselves over and over again. And she talked about how the way they do it is that they never, never, never rest on their laurels. They, of course, celebrate the, the, the history of achievement, but they never allow themselves to think that what got us here is going to get us there. Never. So I would say that that's a emblematic of being sort of ruthless about looking at the context in which you're operating and wh- what needs to be true in order for you to thrive in this era. And they've reinvented themselves as a completely different kind of organization. I don't know how many times. Over and over A again. dozen? I don't know. Yeah, I love that. We we talk about that a lot at Mission, especially, you know, when you create content. I mean, these stories, like, can last thousands of years. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, like mythology or archetypes. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. these things, they, they do last. And if you bring it into this world, like if you do a good job of getting it out there, if you do a good job of distributing it, yeah. um, and it and it's high quality, like it can last. The stuff that we work, you know, I, I say this all the time to our team, like the stuff that, you know, sitting in your sweatpants on your couch, you know, with your dog on your lap can last for 2,000 years. Like that is so empowering Completely. and exciting. But it's tapping into something that is universal and that is inherently human. You know, as I was saying before, I drive up and down 101 sometimes here in the Bay Area and I look at billboards and I say, not only is that billboard not going to last, those words on that billboard aren't going to last. <laughs> I, I, What are those words? Those are new words that will not be here tomorrow because, and I can't connect to them for a lot of reasons. But I'm really... I, I really think that you have to tap into something more enduring in order to create enduring value. And that's not easy. It's just a really good way to focus. I love that. Enduring value. That's great. Let's get into some lightning round questions. Okay. We got to get you out of here. <laughs> Been very generous with your time. But these questions are fast and easy. Just like marketing automation with Pardot, go to pardot.com slash podcast to learn more about B2B marketing with the world's number one CRM. Lightning round style, lightning fast questions. Are you ready? Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? I love Instagram. What's your favorite vacation spot? The last one I just came from, Cuba. But the next time you ask me that question, it'll be the place I just came from then. What is your favorite ad campaign of all time? That's a great question. (laughs) Uh, Many, but uh, years and years ago, Remember when somebody that would be body shop set out to get a lot of attention from not only the world, but also from the law when they invented a variation of Barbie and her name was Ruby and she had wild kinky red hair and she had huge thighs and big hips and she was beautiful, but she was a ripoff of a Barbie doll. And I can't remember the quote, but it was something the campaign, but it was something like, you know, beauty is more than skin deep. And it was such a radical punch in the face to the beauty companies back then that were, you know, all, you know, white, skinny women who looked the same. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was genius. It was also, you know, sort of a chief counsel's worst nightmare. But oh, it yeah. was really, really brave. What would be your best advice for a first-time CMO? Uh, go on a listening tour. That's easy. Lots of people do it. It's legendary. That's also my advice for the first time CEO. And that's what actually our new incoming CEO is doing right now. But go out and talk to everybody you can talk to inside and outside the organization and suspend your um, desire to want to jump in right away with solutions. Listen. What question do you never get asked that I did not ask you today that you wish you had been asked? What's that bird? <laughs> what is that bird? <laughs> What'd you call it? A yellow western tanager. I, gosh, western tanager. <laughs> it's all right. It's... My my father is just going to be beside himself <laughs> if he listens to this. Um, thanks so much for hanging out. It's this a real pleasure. Awesome. It's fun. Thank you, Ian. Um, and uh, oh, anything to plug? What do you got? What do you got going on here soon? Anything fun? What have we got going on? Yesterday we launched uh, IDEO Shape. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's a way of, you know, teams working together to be generative together and to share inspiration and capture what they're creating together and sort of be in the flow of what it means to be a creative team. That's super Check exciting. A uh, couple of days ago, we launched the IDEO Journal. And so that is IDEO people thinking about big questions that are on the minds of leaders today and how creativity and design is, you know, being applied to tackle those questions. Everything from really how important is the physical plant and how do you design that in a creative way so that you can get more out of your teams and support them in better ways through space. Well, thanks so much for having Thank out. you. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And um, I love your, uh, your, your approach. You make it fun. And you know stuff. That helps too. <laughs> <laughs> Don't quote me on that. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. 
Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.